Well, would you open your hymnal to hymn 103? You know what I'm talking about? The book of Psalms, Psalm 103. I'm talking about the biblical hymnal, the hymnal the Israelite people used in the temple period, and that is the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 103. This was the hymnal used by the Jewish people for centuries, and this is a great, wonderful, God-inspired book for us to consider and really to even seek to find truth from these psalms and sing them. And so we sang Psalm 103, or a song based on that psalm, and we're going to sing it in a little bit as well. And I thought I would take a break from 1 Corinthians, partly because the next section is a very difficult one, and it's four chapters long as far as the section. But also I thought this would be good for us to learn the context of this psalm as we sing this song for this month, the song of the month called Bless the Lord, O My Soul, Psalm 103. The book of Psalms really actually is five hymnals, five books. The, our book of Psalms, you can see that divided up in those five books. If you uh, turn to Psalm one, or you turn to Psalm 90, you can see the fourth book starts in Psalm 190. And then it goes through Psalm 106. And many people correspond the five books here in Psalms with the five books of the Pentateuch, of the Torah. And so if this is the fourth book that Psalm 103 is in, then that would be the book of Numbers. And so the Psalms from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106, the fourth book of Psalms, would correspond to numbers, then it deals with how to praise God, how to trust God in a time of wilderness wandering. Remember what the book of Psalms, or remember what the book of Numbers was about. The book of Numbers was written and describes Israel when they were in a time that they were wandering. They were lost. There was spiritual dryness. There was unbelief. There was hardship for everyone. I mean, this was the time from when they were released and freed from Egypt, from being slaves, and they were on their way to God's promised land, but they found themselves between those areas, and they found themselves lost. Not that God had lost them, but they had lost their own way. And so they would sleep in the desert, and they would sleep in tents, and imagine that. They're in these tents in the desert, in the morning they get up and they walk out into the hot, dry, sweltering heat of the desert. And they longed for a better life. They looked forward to that life in Canaan when they could have a house, they, they could have nutritious food, they could have comfortable homes. But then there was a point in the book of Numbers when they heard about what was in the land of Canaan. They were large, fortified cities. There were strong armies. There were impossible odds, and they despaired. In fact, Numbers chapter 14 describes a time where they complained. The Bible says they literally cried all night long. So imagine two million people camped in tents around the tent of the Lord, and they're crying, really complaining to God. And Numbers 14 describes them getting out of their tents the next morning. They were fed up with Moses, fed up with Aaron. They picked up stones. They gathered around him as he was in front of the tent of meeting, and they were ready to end it. And they, they seized and they yelled, it would have been better for us if we were slaves still in Egypt. And why did you and why did the Lord, why did Yahweh bring us out here only to die, only to go into Canaan and be slaughtered by these people? The people turned into a mob and they were going to stone Moses and Aaron. And then Caleb and Joshua, they step in and they try to remind the people, no, no, God is good. Remember God's goodness. But they were not hearing that. And then Yahweh God entered into the picture. And the Bible says that the presence of the Lord appeared in that holy tent. His glorious, 
majestic, bright majesty radiated forth from that tent. It was like a a nuclear reaction went off and the holy tabernacle illuminated with the intense glorious splendor of Yahweh's presence and that got everyone's attention. And, And Moses fell before the Lord and he heard the voice of the Lord and then he prayed to the Lord and this is what Moses prayed to the Lord. He recalled this to his mind. Yahweh, the Lord, is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And so during this time of lostness, of this wilderness wandering, a time when they were coming against him, what did Moses recall to his mind? It was the character and the work of God. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of wilderness wandering, this is what God wants us to recall to our mind. It's that he loves us. He has a covenant with us. He forgives our sins. Psalm 103 is one of those psalms that reminds us of God's character when we are in a wilderness wandering. When our hearts are down, when we feel like we are in a dark place, when our souls dry up, when our love for God grows cold, when it feels like we're lost, when our eyes of faith grow dim, when it seems like God's not there, when maybe you wonder, is God even still good? In those times, Psalm 103 reminds us who God is and what God has done In fact, if you look over in Psalm 102, you can see that this psalm leads into Psalm 103. Look at the preface for Psalm 102. It says, it's a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before God. So if you're in this low time, Psalm 102 describes that. In verse 1, it describes a person who cries. Verse 2 You feel like God's presence is gone. Verse three, your body aches. Verse four, your heart is depressed. Verse five, you groan. Verse six, you feel alone. Verse seven, you can't sleep. And verse eight, you feel like everyone's against you. Do you feel like that sometimes? Maybe that's in the place. Maybe that's the place where you are this morning. Maybe you have a friend that's there. Maybe you can remember a time in your life where that was you right there. This is the state of a person who needs the next psalm, Psalm 103. You might feel like you are in a wilderness. You're lost. Maybe you are beaten up. You're sad. You're questioning God. And so what do you need in a time of wilderness, wandering, you need to summon your soul to worship God. And that's what Psalm 103 does. In fact, if you look at Psalm 103, look at verse 1. Psalm 103, 1. Bless the Lord. When the Lord is in all caps, L-O-R-D, that's the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. It's his personal name. So bless Yahweh, O my soul. Bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then go to the end of that chapter. Go to chapter 22, Psalm 103, 22, and look at the last line. What does it say? Bless the Lord, Oh, my soul. When your soul is down, when your soul feels lost, what should you do? You need to call your soul back to worshiping God by really preaching the character and work of God to yourself. The soul is the innermost part of who you really are. It's the immaterial part of a person that out of which flows are our thoughts and our desires our our reasoning. It's the innermost essence of you. It's the eternal you that lasts forever. 
So Psalm 103 calls your soul to worship God by preaching to yourself who he is and what he has done. In fact, notice that word bless there. Seven times there is a command in Psalm 103 to bless Yahweh, to bless the Lord. The word bless means to praise. It's from the Hebrew word barak, which is related to another Hebrew word of kneeling. So it's the idea of of kneeling, of bowing, of adoring, of praising the Lord. So it's calling your soul to do what? To worship God. And sometimes when we're down, the last thing we think about doing is worshiping God. I'm not really feeling good today. Maybe I'll just sleep in and not go to church. I'm having a hard day. Maybe I won't read my Bible today. I'll just go to bed. But actually, the reality is the most important thing you need to do when your soul is down and depressed is you need to worship God. You see, every day you worship something or someone. You're either worshiping yourself or your ideal circumstances or how you think your life should go or should have gone, your regrets, your desires, your lusts, your will, or you're worshiping God and you're submitting to his will and his word and you're trusting him. That was true for Israel in the book of Numbers in their wilderness wandering. Who and what did they worship when they were in that wilderness? Well, they worshiped a golden calf at one point, right? They, they bowed down to this calf that Aaron made for them. And really, even that was an example of self-worship. They did it in the lust of their flesh. They did it to hopefully get something for themselves. And then when they tried to stone Moses, they were worshiping the God of their ideal circumstances. If only we were slaves again in Egypt. That would have been way better. What? No, it wouldn't have been. And even the God of their ideals was just worshiping the God of self. If I was God, this is how life would be. If, if, if I was God, and you know what, I'll go ahead and be God. This is how life should have gone. And so I will replace God with myself, and I will demand that this is how things should be. And in the end, you find that you are truly a worshiper of you. And that is a dark, deceptive place to be. In the misery of self-worship, our minds are blinded to God's, God's goodness. I mean, think about that. I, I wish we were slaves again in Egypt. What? No, you're deceived. Really, you think a golden idol can give you something? Just a, a, a piece of metal? Like, let's pray to this. Hopefully something will happen. What? It's nothing. Really, your ideals are better than God? If you were God, you would run the world in a better way? No, you're deceived. We easily get deceived. So what do we need to do when our hearts are that way and our souls are down? We need to bless the Lord. We need to, once again, consider who he is, what he's done, and direct our attention to God in worship. And so in this psalm, what we see is three themes of God's work that we are to preach to ourselves. Three themes of God's work to preach to your soul. So we're going to look at the first one this morning. Preach to yourself God's benefits to you. So if your soul's down, what are you to do? Well, you need some preaching. What you need to do is you need to preach to your own soul. Preach this, God's benefits. Look at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. So here you have the, the psalmist. Again, he's, he's, he's talking to his soul and saying, Soul, consider what God has done for you. Forget not all his benefits. Soul, remember the works of God. Soul, remember what God says about himself. Preach God's benefits. And what are those benefits? Well, in verse 3, we see a list of those. Verse 3, who, that's Yahweh God, who forgives all your iniquity. Forgives all your iniquity. 
The word iniquity speaks of our sins against God, but even more, it includes judgment. Iniquity includes guilt. It it includes what we deserve. That is punishment for our sins. The same Hebrew word is used by Cain when he, after he in anger killed his brother and he blamed God for it. This is what Cain says in Genesis 4, 13. He said to the Lord, my punishment or my iniquity is greater than I can bear. It wasn't just his sin. It was like the consequences for my sin. God cursed him. And so here we see this word iniquity. It carries more than just that you've sinned against God. It means that God deserves to punish you. So he's speaking of our iniquity that we deserve judgment for. Our anger, our lack of love, our selfishness, our thoughts against an eternal God. And yet what does God do for those who trust him? What does God do for those who look to him for salvation? What does it say? He forgives all your iniquity. That includes the sin and that includes the judgment. He forgives. He pardons. And How is that possible? How, how is it possible that God can do that? Well, it's only possible, possible because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to be resurrected for us. He died in our place. In him, Ephesians 1 says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He forgives us through the work of Jesus Christ. And so friend, if you're in here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his offer to you is full forgiveness. This verse can be applied to you if you turn to him and look to him for salvation. He forgives all your iniquity. He, verse three, heals all your diseases. Well, we got some people in here that have some diseases, some sicknesses, some difficulties. We have some people that aren't here because of that. So when is this going to happen? Well, one day God promises that he will heal every one of our diseases. The scripture says that we shall see him, that's Jesus Christ, and we shall be like him, which means that he will gift us a new life that is a new resurrected body like his own. And when that happens, there will be no more sickness, no more disease. He will heal every disease and we will be in his presence for eternity. And then verse four, who redeems your life from the pit. To redeem means to purchase out of bondage. The the pit refers to death, that place which is void of God's presence and void of God's goodness. But for those who are redeemed, listen to this, for those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ and have received his gift of salvation, you're redeemed. Death has no threat on you. There is no reason for any of us who know Christ to fear death. Because he has gained the victory and he's redeemed us from the pit. Who, verse four, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Not only are you no longer slaves to sin, no longer have you been, are you free from just the shackles of sin and death, but you are also even far beyond that. You are crowned as a child of the king. He crowns you with his love and his mercy. I mean, imagine, imagine a slave thrown into a pit and he's there to languish and to stay till he rots away. But then he's pulled from that pit. He's washed. He's brought into the presence of a king and they, they put a royal robe on him and they put a crown on his head and the king looks at him and says, I have chosen you and I now love And I think that's the picture of what we see right here, that you, brother and sister in Christ, you are crowned with the love of Jesus Christ. You were washed from all sin. You wear the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. You're crowned with his promise that you are always his. He will always love you. And you are granted all the rights of being a child of the King of Kings. Amen. He satisfies you in verse five. 
Who satisfies? That's God. Satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God satisfies. The word satisfies here means to fill up. It suggests something is filled to the brim. I imagine a cup that's on a table and it's filled with water and, you know, your kids fill it up for you. And so what do they do is they fill it so high. It's, in fact, it's almost like it's over the top. If you look at the side, it's over the top. It's, it's completely filled. It's satisfied. And, and what is satisfied here in this verse here? What is it? Well, he's speaking to his soul, right? And so his soul is, is filled up. It, his soul is filled up with contentment, with delight, with joy. And who is it that, that fills up that soul? It's God. And what does God fill that soul with? It says in the verse, it says, with good. Well, what is that? Well, there are many good things in this world, but the greatest good is God himself. And God is the one who can fill your heart with himself and his grace the most joyful, fulfilling goodness of God is a relationship with him. It's fellowship with the Lord. And oh, what a blessing it is as a child of God that we can speak directly to the Father through Jesus. And oh, how sad it is that many times we neglect that, right? We, we fill up our hearts with the garbage of this world. We, we become dissatisfied with our lives, with our marriages, with our jobs, with our souls. Ultimately, we become dissatisfied with God. And we try to quench our never-ending thirst with the fulfillment of sexual Im imaginations, with drugs, with alcohol, maybe sometimes even with work, with mindless binge-watching, with endless scrolling on social media with even the pursuit of adrenaline rushes and we're trying to fill our soul up, it's not satisfied, something must satisfy, friends. There's only one who can truly satisfy and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And he was speaking of spiritual hunger. If you come to Jesus and you have a relationship with God through Jesus, you will never spiritually hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You don't have to spiritually thirst. You can be filled to the brim in your soul with the Lord. And so he satisfies, he satisfies. Let me just say, if that is something you're not experiencing right now, that's what Jesus wants you to know. And it's found as you draw near to him. And so soul, are you cast down? Remember these benefits. Verse three, God has forgiven you. He heals. Verse four, he's redeemed. He's bought you. He loves you. Verse five, God satisfies your soul. Preach those to your soul. How about the next one? The next theme to preach to your soul about the work of God in your life. Preach to yourself God's works for his people. In verses 6 through 18, the psalmist switched from considering God's benefits to the soul to God's benefits and his works really for his people. In fact, look at verse 6. You can see that. Notice God's character and his works for his people in verse 6. The Lord, again, Yahweh, the covenant name for God, works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. This Hebrew word for righteousness is, as one commentator says, a relationship word. It's a covenantal word. It's, the, it's that the promises, it, it's the promise here that Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God and he will work righteousness for his people. It's that God works in a way that is right to his people, and he brings about what is right for his people. Let me say that one more time. God works in a way that is right toward his people, and he brings about what is right for his people. And the oppressed here in verse 6, if you see in verse 6, the oppressed are speaking of all of God's people who are oppressed. 
This, this is not all the oppressed on earth. This is not the, the verse that someone should pull out and put it on a poster board for their social justice marches, right? That's not what this is talking about. This is speaking to God's covenantal people and those who are oppressed. And this psalm is a, is a word of comfort for them. This is a psalm to God's covenant people that God's, God will work righteousness to them and for them. Therefore, when, when God's people are oppressed, when you feel oppressed, you can trust this. That God's work in your life is right. God's work in your life is right and he will bring about what is righteous. And you might not see it now. Like you might be, well, I'm not seeing it. Could be maybe your heart is maybe darkened a little bit by your own perspective, by your own maybe sin. It could be that you don't see the end result. But I promise you this, there will be a day in glory where you will look back and you will say, yes, all his ways are righteous. And it's good for us in a place of difficulty to worship God and pray this right here, that God, you are righteous and just in your work toward me. Dana and I have had times when we've stood next to the beds of people in hospitals who are going through something difficult. We had a time where we stood next to an incubator and we prayed this over our daughter who we were told might die that night. And we prayed, I believe your works are righteous. I might not see it right now, but I trust you. We've had times when it seemed like life has fallen apart and we've gotten our knee beside our couch and we prayed, Lord, it doesn't seem righteous, but I believe your works are righteous. And friends, all of us, at times in our life, we think that, right? We're like, I do not see how this is the right thing. Like, God, how in the world are you doing the right thing in my life? But listen, friends, we must worship the Lord and say, no, Lord, I might not see it for whatever reason, but I believe it's true. You do what is right. God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. How did God make known his ways to Israel? Well, God revealed himself through his word. I mean, think about this. God speaks to us through his word. What a blessing that is. I finished a book this past week called Higher Calling. And it's uh, a story about some airmen in World War II. It's a very fascinating story. And that's not what this illustration is about. Um, but was, there was one part in there that I thought was very tender. And that is just these men, they're in their barracks and they're waiting to fly. And you know, there's, sometimes there's nothing to do. And they're really desiring to, to get a letter in the mail. I mean, they're, they're checking to see, did anything come from me? And when that letter comes, especially if it's from a loved one, they open that up and they read it. They reread it, they put it in their pocket, they study it, they get in the plane, they sometimes keep it with them in the plane. Like they loved those words because it came from a loved one. And that's the blessing of the word of someone who loves you. And listen, friend, God loves us. He loves his covenant people and he's given us his word. That's what he's saying here in this text. God has given us his word. He has made known his ways to us through the scripture. And so, oh, how we should... Love his word, cherish it, keep it in our hearts and our minds, carry it through throughout the day, carry it with us throughout the day. Verse seven was a reference to the scripture, but actually a particular part of the scripture. In fact, look at verse seven and eight. He made known his ways to Moses. So there's a specific person, Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And then here's the, Special, particular word of God in verse 8. The Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like, didn't we just read that at the beginning of this sermon? Well, this was a reference 
not to Numbers chapter 14, but actually Exodus chapter number 34. In fact, would you go with me to Exodus chapter 34? Turning your Bibles to Exodus 34, I want to show this to you in Exodus. Because in Exodus 34, Moses is on top of the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And God descends, and we know this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm actually going to read out of the Legacy Standard Bible, because I think it uh, translates some of this very helpful, gives a good description of it. Look at Exodus 34, 5. Then Yahweh, and imagine this, then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. I mean, think about that. Yahweh came down. He stood there with him. Think about the brilliance and the majesty and the awesomeness of his glory. But even more amazing than his presence actually was what he communicated about who he was. Look at verse 6. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then skip down to verse 8. Look at this, verse 8. And Moses made haste to do what? To bow low toward the earth and do what? And worship, and worship. I mean, what was Moses' response to hearing the character of God? He fell down and he worshiped. And when you truly encounter who God is, and what God has done, you can't help but fall before him in humility. So go back, go back with me to Psalm 103. Because Psalm 103 is quoting this verse in Exodus chapter 34. I wonder how many times Moses recalled those words that God is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He forgives how many times did that come back to his mind and he recalled that to his soul and said, soul, remember who God is. It happened in Numbers chapter 14, didn't it? In fact, you see this through the Old Testament. You see this prayer, this really recollection of the character of God that the Lord is merciful and gracious and he's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. After the exile, some of the Jewish people went back to Jerusalem to build the temple and in, in the walls, to the city in Nehemiah 9.17, Exodus, that, that uh, phrase in Exodus is quoted. The prophet Joel preached this same phrase in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. In fact, if you remember, Jonah even recalled that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. In Jonah 4.2. And there's an idea out there that, you know, there's this God of the Old Testament that's the angry God. And the God of the New Testament that's the loving God. That is completely false. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And who is God? Well, look at Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is merciful. He is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's who our God is. God shows mercy. He doesn't give you what you deserve. And that's a praise. He's gracious, which means he gives you what you don't deserve. He's slow to anger. Think about how patient God is with us. He's abounding in steadfast love. That's that hesed love. That's that covenantal love. That's that unconditional love. God unconditionally loves us. He abounds in that. He overflows with that. Look at verse number nine. He will not chide. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I mean, think about that. He does not deal with us and respond to us according to our sins. 
But oh, we do that with other people, don't we? Right? Right? Children in this room, if your sibling pinches you, what do you want to do back? Well, it's either a nice pinch or a nice slug, right? I mean, think about this for us. Like, If someone hurts us, they speak evil against us, what are we going to do? We're going to say something nasty back. We're going to get revenge. We're going we're gonna to repay them for their sins against us. But that is not how God responds to us according to our sins. Like those in his covenant family, he doesn't respond to us. He doesn't repay us according to our sins. Now, actually, look how he deals with us. Notice how he loves us. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. So there you see those who fear him, those who are in his covenant family, those who worship him. And how does he respond to us according to our sins? Not the way we deserve. He actually responds with great love for as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? I mean, how high are the stars? How far does the, do the galaxies go? Like how big is the universe? Do you know? No, I don't think you do, right? Because it just goes on and on. There's a telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope. Have you read about that and seen some of the pictures? They're pretty amazing. And astronomers claim through the James Webb Telescope, they can see galaxies 13.5 billion light years from Earth. So think about that. So we, when we look at the moon at night, it takes about 1.3 seconds for the light reflected off of the moon to hit our eyes. So, you know, it's like you're looking at the moon, you're seeing it 1.3 seconds earlier. When the sun shines light on the earth, it takes about eight and a half minutes for that light to get here. So the sun could be burned out right now. We're not going to find out for another eight and a half minutes, okay? But think about how far the stars are. Space is so enormous that they measure space by the distance light travels in one earth year. So you think about light traveling, <clears throat> how long it takes to travel in one earth year. Light, the one light year is about six trillion miles. And so if you travel the speed of light to the edge of our solar system, not the galaxy, not the universe, our solar system, it would take you 1.87 years. So a little less than two years at the speed of light to go to the end of our solar system. The farthest away we can see in this telescope is 13.5 billion light years away. That's pretty amazing to consider. And that's just as far as we can see. There's much more beyond that. Now, and we think about that, and we're in awe of the vastness of space, how big it is. We're like these little tiny little dots. We're not even a dot. We're so small, right? With how grand and amazing everything is, and we, we say God's creation is glorious. It's amazing. Look what he did. God's amazing. But God wants us to take that mind-blowing reality and consider that his love is greater than that for you. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, I mean, far beyond 13.5 billion light years away, is a steadfast love for those who fear him. What is bigger than the universe? That's a question. That's a riddle. Maybe you can tell that riddle this week. What's bigger than the universe? God's love for his children. God loves you so much. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. I mean, think about that. You think about the vastness of space, and here we are, these little molecule beings walking around with souls, eternal souls. Why would any God care about us? But he does. And he doesn't just create, he didn't just create us and love us. He actually sent his one and only son, God himself came to this world and 
died on the cross for our sins. Greater love has no one than this, that a man, that a man lays down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for us. God loves you. And friends, this is something, church, this is something that we should meditate on throughout this week. In fact, that's what he wants us to do in this text. He wants us to really consider God's love for us and meditate on that. And so he does that in four verses, and he gives four as-so statements. So in verse 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, you can see these, these four really illustrations of God's love for us. And so the first one was in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How much does God love us? He's taken our sins. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Well, if you were to travel west and keep going and keep going, how long would that take you to get to the east? Forever. You'd never get there, right? You just, you'd keep going around west. And that's what he's saying. It's like as far as the east is from the west. In other words, it's forever. God has removed your sin far away and it's eternally gone. God will never bring your sin up and shove it back in your face. Praise God for that. The third illustration is of a father. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Think about a loving father. I mean, a father who truly, truly cares for his kids. He's there for them. He shares his wisdom with them. He provides, he hugs, he protects, he instructs. And God is like a loving father. He loves us. He has compassion upon us. And to who? To whom is that? Look at verse 10 and 11, the very end. It's those who what? Those who fear him. Those who, who are in awe of him. Those who worship him. Another description of God's people. And then verse 14 is the last illustration. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. God knows how fragile we are. You and I are just dust. God created humans out of the elements of the earth. And when we die, all of us, all of us will turn back to dust. It might take a while because they, you know, inject us now with all this embalming fluid. But eventually, you'll turn back to dust. God knows how fragile we are. He knows how temporary life is. Do you? I mean, sometimes we realize it when we stand next to the casket of our friends and our family, of our moms and our dads. We realize, wow, life went by very quickly. And so he meditates on this. Look at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Do you guys remember grass? Remember that green stuff that we used to have in our yards before they turned us, told us to turn all the water off? And isn't it amazing how fast grass dies? You know, it's like you turn the water off, but you've got to save water, and then it's brown, and eventually the wind comes, and it goes away, and it's dirt. And for those of you that are watching and don't live in California, you just don't really know what we're talking about. In the same way, it's shocking how quickly life comes and goes. Our days are like grass, a flower in the field. Look at verse 16. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Once grass dies or a flower wilts, it's gone. And if you water it, then another will take its place. That's life. Like in, in the same way, the house you're living in right now will be lived in by someone else someday. And you know what? They probably won't even really know who you are. What people thought about you in this life, it won't matter in the next. Your achievements will be forgotten. Your former life on this earth will include maybe a, a few pictures, maybe a couple videos. But one day people will say, who was that? Right? One day they'll look at it and they'll say, 
I don't know. And they won't care. And at your funeral, you might imagine people, family and friends crying. And one day, after you die, your memory will diminish. And there might be some memories of you, but one day you will be remembered no more by anyone on this earth. And that is life. That is life on this earth. That is reality. We like to imagine it's different. Like, oh yeah, people, no, there will be a day when all of us, none of us, I should say, are remembered at all. Nobody cares about your life on this earth. But here's the contrast. God does. God cares. He has loving thoughts. Look at verse 17. Look at God's loving thoughts for us. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. If you're a child of God, if you're a worshiper of Yahweh, people will forget about you, but God never will. God never will. And the memory of you will matter to God. In eternity, you will be with him, but even the memory of who you were in this world And what you did for the Lord, your faithfulness to him, it will matter. And that means our lives do matter now. They matter now. And what matters while you're here? Look at verse 18. What matters while you're here? Those who do what? Keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Friends, that right there is what truly matters in this world. Living in fellowship with God, following his commandments, obeying his word. I hope and I pray, and I think many of you do as well, that our country stops going down this road of communistic, socialistic destruction. But the truth is, politics in a million years won't matter. What matters is your faithfulness to God. That means faithfully praying for your government, or that means faithfully doing your part, but it means you're faithful to the Lord Yahweh and not to a political system. I want my kids to get a better education. I want them to develop physically and other skills, but listen up parents and grandparents, education, sports, hobbies, without an eternal perspective, especially if it replaces God, will mean nothing in eternity. What will last for your kids? Keeping his covenant, teaching them his will. That's why it's so foolish for us to neglect Christ, to neglect his church and prioritize me. It doesn't mean we don't educate, we should educate doesn't mean we don't have hobbies. We should have hobbies. It's not a problem. Let's do it with God in the center of it. Let's do it for the glory of God. Let's do it to direct our our children to the Lord. So important for us to keep our minds focused on this, to keep our hearts attentive to this. That's why as parents and grandparents, it's so important for us to pray for our children Yeah, pray that they get better grades. Pray that these things can, but pray that they will follow the Lord. That's why it's so important for them to meditate and memorize memorize God's word. In a couple weeks, we have True Trackers starting up. And it's a time for you parents to partner with us and for us to partner with you to disciple your kids, to teach them God's word, to have memorized God's word. Those are the things that matter. We need to invest in what will last for eternity. So when our souls are down, we should Preach to ourselves God's work for his people. Verse six, he's righteous. He's just. Verse seven, he has given us his word. He reveals himself. Verse eight, he's merciful. He's gracious. He overflows with covenant love. Verse nine, he's patient. He's merciful. He doesn't repay us according to our sins. Verse 11, he greatly loves you. Verse 12, he forgives. Verse 13, he's compassionate. Verses 14 through 18, God loves you forever. Meditate on those. Preach that to your soul. And the last, and as usual, the shortest, preach to yourself God's authority over all. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. 
God is the king who sits on the throne. Not the throne in Washington. I and mean, there's not really a throne there, but I mean, some people think they're on a throne. Or in Beijing or any other place on the planet. His throne is in the heavens far beyond this world. Yet, even though his throne room is celestial, he rules over this earth. And there is no aspect in this universe or on this earth that is not under his reign. His kingdom rules over all. And what does that include? It includes all people. It includes all nations. It includes even corrupt ones, even ones that are going the wrong way, that are turning away from him. He can use all those things to fulfill his sovereign will. He rules over history, over creation, over natural laws. And he takes all those things and he uses them to fulfill his purpose, which is to glorify his name and to do good to his people. So when you are cast down, when you read how foolish politicians are, when you see our economy in shambles, Preach this to your soul. God has authority over all of that. And actually, he uses the good and the bad and the ugly for his glory. So look at verse number 20. If you're an angel, the scripture says there are angels who are watching this service right now, and they're in awe of what's going on in here. So angels, verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. If you're a celestial warrior and the, the army of God, what are you to do? Verse 21, bless the Lord, all you, or all his hosts. That's all his army angels, his ministers who do his will. If you're in creation, the waves, the planets, the wind, the earth, what are you to do? Bless the Lord, verse 21, or verse 22, bless the Lord all his works, its creation, in all places of his dominion, that's everywhere. If everything under God's rule should consider his authority and worship him, what should your soul do? Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And I wonder if I'm speaking to someone right now and you are like, Pastor Ben, I am lost in the wilderness of my life. My soul is downcast. Would you this morning right now obey this call to call your soul to worship by preaching to yourself the character and work of God? And I think that's probably primarily the way to do that is through praying, is through sometimes in your closet alone, sometimes it's in a seat like this, is going before the Lord in prayer and, and, and calling out to God and God, saying, God, I, this is who you are and I praise you for that and I trust you, Lord. And sometimes it's standing up as a group and we sing and we go, okay, what are we singing about? What's the truth up there? Okay, God, I believe that. I'm going to sing it out to you. And I believe there probably is a person in here or maybe someone listening that you're without Christ. And these promises don't apply to you unless you turn and believe. And listen, Jesus says, come unto me, come to me. And you know what? He will not cast you out. He will bring you into his family. Would you call on him today? Would you bow your heart with me this morning in prayer?